lights out manufacturing. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, it means um, physically the plant is completely automated. Raw material is loaded on uh, one side of the dock, uh, comes from our trucks and whatnot, and the finished product comes out on the other end. Uh, you don't need even need any lights, meaning you don't have anyone in the plant, um, uh, physical human beings there doing the manufacturing. It's completely automated. Welcome to another episode of Contraminds. In this episode, I am talking to Sridhar Ramaswamy. Sridhar is an engineer who moved to the US and is a veteran in building digital factories and is an expert in Industry 4.0. Sridhar took a career path not taken by many. He did not go and join an IT or a software company, but he went into manufacturing. The fact that he went into manufacturing helped him look at manufacturing processes which were completely manual and the whole set of digital transformation was happening to manufacturing industries and he learned those skills and that's what he shares with us in this episode the fact that you need to have interdisciplinary thinking uh, learning from other industries have curiosity have the discipline and the rigor to learn every time ask stupid questions ensure that you don't have the solutions observe people observe processes are some of the things that he shares in this episode let's get into the conversation hi shri lovely talking to you and uh, really great to have a conversation with you on digital factories yeah, me too. Uh, it's been almost uh, 30 years uh, since we met uh, after college, so it's been a long time. Uh, and and the thanks for the invite, and uh, hopefully you find some uh, material that's uh, uh, useful and uh, make it into the podcast. Absolutely, Shri. I think uh, having done uh, you know electrical engineering, uh, today uh, you are actually uh, into uh, building digital factories, right? So... Yeah. Uh, can you uh, tell me, uh, you, you didn't take the normal path of going into software engineering and getting into IT. And so where did this interest in manufacturing, uh, you know, come about? Yeah, um, you know, after undergrad, uh, you know, I worked a year, year and a half uh, uh, in India working for a TBS uh, uh, washing machine plant. And uh, so they trained me on uh, lean manufacturing, just-in-time production, and uh, so I, I got uh, my interest uh, in the more on the manufacturing side. Uh, I actually wanted to do, be in operations. So when I came to the U.S., um, I wanted to actually do MBA, but I ended up uh, deciding, uh, okay, I'll uh, do actually um, electrical engineering. I continue with my electrical engineering, get my graduate degree. So when I graduated, it was in Wisconsin, um, the, you know, uh, because of the visa and everything else. And I, I could, was able to do one year of a, um, more like a uh, trainee program with the steel company. And uh, it was a much smaller company. And, uh, uh, you know, again, uh, I get to do a lot of different things, uh, not just engineering. And uh, the first opportunity was it's heavy manufacturing. And uh, that's how I got into manufacturing rather than uh, uh, going into programming. And obviously, 
you know, was an automation engineering job. You get to do a little bit of a programming as well. It was not like a, you stayed away from it, but it's also traditional engineering, uh, you know, designing control systems and things like that. So it's a mix of both. Uh, you know, so yeah, that, that's where it came apart. So, uh, so one thing uh, that I see is, uh, you know, uh, you got a career uh, which is very interesting, which is, you know, you got into smart manufacturing, you got into uh, digital transformation, you've been yeah. doing digital transformation in all, uh, aerospace, pharma. Uh, so one thing that I can see is that, uh, you know, uh, you've been a curious learner all through your, uh, you know, your career. Uh, so how do you really prepare yourself for such a diverse career, given the fact that, uh, you know, you started off, uh, you know, in electrical engineering, but now uh, you're really talking of, uh, you know, a whole different industry. So how did you go about uh, preparing preparing yourself for such careers? Yeah, you know, uh, obviously, this is uh, uh, my, based on my experience. So uh, necessity made me to uh, learn different things. So when I was in the steel industry, it was a much lower uh, profit margin industry. So we, you know, the engineering and the automation, that's the easy part, you can get it done. But uh, eventually uh, it came to a point, uh, we wanted to be more efficient. Uh, we wanted to make it right the first time, things like that. So then you're going beyond that, uh, you started looking at how, how do I use, uh, you know, or, uh, make product uh, uh, the right way, uh, you know, in steel industry, most of your cost is in conversion, uh, the energy you put in. And once, you know, you put in, there's no recovery. And if you don't make the particular grade, you, you know, you lose your money, right? Uh, so, so from being, just being an engineer, now I'm talking about more of operation. How do, how can we make more profit? How do we make quality products? So that's where the data analytics part comes in. And when I started, uh, a lot of company in steel industry, we have very uh, limited uh, automation. Uh, we didn't do a lot of uh, data analysis and things like that. So we started building uh, some, even those days, we didn't call it machine learning or artificial intelligence. We got a find it, uh, you know, a constraint uh, problem. So we simplified it and we tried to solve the issues in the controllers. That's what we had. Uh, so kind of a, from a going from being a, just an engineer, now you're thinking more of a, how do I optimize my process? So it necessarily made me to do that. Uh, and then after 15 years working there, um, I get a chance to build a brand new plant. Uh, you know, so I get to do a lot of my, you know, use my experience to design it in a way I wanted to design it. And I definitely had a lot of uh, external vendors uh, uh, to partner with. Uh, so we built a really, uh, you know, state-of-the-art facility in the Cleveland area, and uh, and uh, you know, I'm, then I'm getting bored uh, in the steel, and uh, and at the same time, when I was, uh, uh, you know, we started up the plant, and our utilization was like about 40, 45 percent on a brand new plant, and should be anywhere from 80 to 90 percent, and we're not getting it, and uh, there's a lot of uh, issues. Uh, startup issues, premature failures. Uh, all of a sudden, I'm being an engineer from operations. Now I'm looking at reliability issues. Uh, so it's the circumstances, you know, different circumstances and different things I was going through uh, mm -hmm. during my career 
made me to learn new things. So, so I started working on reliability engineering, manufacturing support. How do we improve uh, my plant um, in a life? And uh, so that kind of dictated my next job. And uh, uh, so Swage, like a local company, uh, makes a lot of CNC machine fittings and they had some automotive parts also. They hired me as a reliability engineering manager uh, and manufacturing support manager. And I started managing, you know, at the beginning it was just two plants and then they ended up being six plants. Uh, and um, it's a, uh, so, I completely offer, you know, it's more of a management, managing people, um, and and then I also learning how to improve equipment reliability. I never worked on a CNC machine in my whole life up to that point, and all of a sudden I'm learning about CNC machines. So definitely, you know, you have to take advantage of what is in front of you, what is available, be curious, um, you know, continuously learning. And, 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 and also, you know, if you think it is just a job, then it is a job. Uh, and then, you know, you had to think about it as, as a career. I know my career is, uh, you know, the way I like to define it is, is how can I help uh, companies? How can I help individuals? You know, um, definitely uh, I, I mentioned uh, during our, uh, the beginning, uh, I'm not a great programmer. So I, I had a lot of support, uh, uh, you know, engineers they, throughout my career, they supported me, uh, my teams. Um, to make me look good. Uh, so uh, in turn, uh, their uh, success uh, became my success. Uh, uh, so facilitating, helping them be successful. So that that's what I try to do. So when you hear Sridhar speak, he talks about the importance of an engineer knowing the business problem. Why are plants making such low profits? What do we do to improve utilization? And then they find a solution. So if you are an engineer, the need to be curious about a business, about a business problem, and the importance of working with people seems to be a very, very important, critical aspect of how you can be successful in your engineering job. Every time you tell me, uh, I get an interesting perspective, uh, Shri. One thing is, uh, you actually talked to me about the fact that you went and discovered things that you never done before. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. not how probably the engineers of the past were, right? In the last uh, few decades. So therefore, yeah. when you uh, when you wanted to get there and start looking at reliability engineering or smart manufacturing or using, uh, you know, uh, automation of plants and things like that. Uh, what was your, uh, you know, uh, method of learning? Okay, uh, yeah. was it uh, was it, because it's a very important thing. One is to actually get, uh, you know, uh, completely, uh, you know, stuck saying that I won't take any risks and make yeah. mistakes. So how yeah. did you go about learning, uh, yeah. reducing your mistakes, and yeah. uh, building a career around probably the most in thing today, which is digital factories? So what were your key tenets that you can share with us? Yeah, uh, oh, learning. Uh, you know, I'm not a patient uh, book reader. Uh, I, I, you know, anything. I, if I buy a new toy, um, you know, a lawnmower, for example, uh, 
I, you know, I wouldn't even read a book and I, I'll try to figure it out myself. It's like assembling an Ikea furniture. Um, you, you know, a few times I was screwed up or put the wrong bolt and wrong screw. Uh, and so I'm more of a tinkerer and trying to be hands-on. Uh, and early on, the one thing I learned to do is uh, go watch the process, go listen to the people. Uh, and they want to tell you and uh, they uh, help you learn things and uh, you learn quite a bit by watching and observing and uh, so uh, I, I give you an example uh, i didn't know much about reliability engineering and i got hired uh peter sheared uh, uh my boss at the time at swayzak i don't know what he saw in me but uh, he did uh, hire me and uh, gave me an opportunity and hired me um and uh, so uh i, I had a I hired this uh, maintenance planner and uh, he came from an automotive company. He taught me everything about uh, doing uh, maintenance uh, planning in uh, in any company. Uh, you know, I used to get mad at him and say, why are we not putting all the equipment in preventive maintenance? And uh, he walked me through the process and say, look, without plans and without parts, uh, a preventive maintenance plan is not a very good, it's just a paper uh, uh, plan. Uh, it doesn't work and uh, you don't get the you know efficiencies and yields. So you taught me all the nuances. So that's kind of a, what my uh, MO when it comes to learning. Um, you go talk to the people, learn from people. And, and you know, obviously you do have to do some book learning and some, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, coding and things like that. You have to do a little bit on your own. So that's kind of my, how I will go about learning. Um, uh, listening to the people and asking some questions. Um, you know, sometimes uh, they're not the really smartest of the questions, but uh, that's how I learn. Yeah. Sridhar here talks about the importance of observing and watching. Think back and look at what you do every day and then reflect on how deeply do you watch and observe people processes and business problems. I think that provides a host of ideas for you to solve business problems. And as an engineer, it's very critical to ask stupid questions and you don't need to worry about why it's not so intelligent. I think the fact that you need to ask those stupid questions and keep asking them again and again to understand the core business problem and therefore get deep into why this problem is occurring and therefore you will find a solution at the end of the deep pit. That I think is the most important and you don't need to get embarrassed asking idiotic questions. That I think is a very key message that he gives out in this discussion. You know, in schooling, in college, uh, we are all taught about uh, saying the right thing, right? But suddenly you go to an industry, which yeah. is, uh, you know, you got to set up a plant. You basically have to go and uh, do an industry, uh, you know, a, a category where probably you are not, uh, uh, you know, uh, not knowing. So how did you deal with ambiguity? So how did you, uh, how did you break it down? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Ambiguity uh, and, and the culture, right? Uh, uh, where we come from, uh, you don't question uh, the professors or, uh, uh, you know, uh, and I, I think the professors, I don't know, maybe I, my, my dad uh, was a professor, so I shouldn't kind of generalize it. Uh, 
Um, you know, you don't, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so I think uh, in the U.S., so that's one of the things um, they teach you in schools and, uh, uh, and um, you know, they challenge you on everything. Uh, you can't just assume that your view is the right view. Uh, you, you better have uh, good answers and good explanations uh, before you propose anything, right? So, so you have to do your homework, uh, definitely. Uh, and a lot of times, uh, you know, um, being, you know, I think of my, uh, when I started out as an automation engineer, a lot of times uh, I had to help with the maintenance or troubleshooting and things. And you walk in, um, equipment is down, uh, plant is down, and uh, you know every uh, I think a hour. Uh, Every hour the steel plant was down, we were losing like $100 or something like that. This is almost 30 years ago. So it's a lot of money. And so, there's, you know, um, every uh, the company was a private company and there was a lot of pressure uh, and everybody got benefit if he made good tons. So there's a lot of, always a pressure when you walk in. And, and so early on, um, you got to have good discipline. Uh, and so, you know, lean teaches you. Uh, that's one thing I learned. Uh, um, so I, I, that's why I go back to my lean training um, to le listen to your people. Uh, and uh, that's one thing, um, you know, that's important for me. Uh, so you walk in in, in any situation could be, at, you know, you don't know what you're going to deal with, whether it's a maintenance troubleshooting or a problem you're trying to solve. Um, and later on, uh, when I was working for Alcoa, uh, we're an aerospace company, we're supplying parts, and I was in the digital transformation team. We'll go to different plants and different sites, and we walk in, they had different problems. One had efficiency issues, they're not making fast enough. Others had quality issues. Uh, so different issues you had to walk in. So you 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 go interview you spend time um, in the uh, field so to speak and learn uh, before you open your big mouth to uh, start suggesting things uh, that's important um, you know when you're dealing with ambiguity um, also you try to apply uh, instances and cases from parallel uh, industries and parallel uh, observation, that helps uh, when you're dealing with the ambiguity. And there's no substitute doing homework and uh, reading up on things. Uh, mm -hmm. Those are the things. And uh, um, in, so to me, it's a multiple different things. There's no like a black and white uh, when it comes to ambiguity. Uh, and also eventually your experience also comes into play. They, they call it gut feeling. You know, gut feeling is based on experience in my mind. Mm -hmm. So those are the things I generally use. So if you look at this section, Sridhar talks about how he deals with ambiguity. Most often in our education systems and in whatever we do over the first 20 years of our life, we actually know what questions are going to be asked and we are prepared for answering those questions. When you get into a business and when you get into a job, most often the problem is not known. Therefore, the importance of observing, understanding the business, looking at the business problem. And if you look at some of the points that he says, he does not talk about the solution first. He talks about listening to people observing the process, understanding the business problem. And that I think is very, very important. He talks about the importance of discipline and not jumping to conclusions by first looking at each problem in a most 
modular manner and then you go back and then say okay this is how probably you may need to solve so the importance and the criticality of looking at the business problem observing people observing the process and learning from it is very very important so, uh, you talk a lot about uh, you know lean and uh, you know maybe you are leaning on lean right in solving <laughs> problems so what are the key tenets of lean that you carry with you even today ha uh, um uh, even uh, you know uh, dealing with my kids and my family uh, i kind of uh, uh, try to uh, you know the one thing i learned early on is i'm always not right uh, i think i know the answers but uh, a lot of times uh, 50 50 chance uh, i may be wrong so uh, so you walk in and uh, uh, you know that that's one thing i you know i learned to do observe uh, and then the third thing for me is uh you know data uh if you have good data there is no substitute for having a data and letting the data dictate uh, the terms uh, you know uh, so uh, often uh you don't have good data available um in one instance i, I just took a job um uh, you know they gave me two plants uh, at stage like and we didn't have good uh uh data to go by or how the plant was performing all i had was a excel spreadsheet i had where i was logging um the spend uh, you know the pos uh, purchase orders were writing and i started using that for the first month or so and started looking at uh, so that's you know it gave me a pattern things i know were we we were calling a lot of external help uh, and um, to troubleshoot and fix our machines uh, and then when the help came i started focusing on what they were doing and and they were uh working on equipment uh, unsupervised so some behaviors we needed to change so i started assigning uh, um, technicians to work with them and that helped them to keep an eye on what they are doing and also they were learning uh, on the job so to speak so so you have to start with the data so those are very basic fundamental things uh, you know have a open mind and uh, understand that you're not always right that's one thing observe and listen talk to people and third uh, third thing um, use any data uh, that's available for you to you know dictate the uh, what you will do fantastic So in this section, if you look at what Shridhar is talking, he talks about the importance of an open mind and data. Most often, this aspect of an open mind is not given so much of an importance, especially when you are working with people, when a business problem is thrown at you, and if you have all the experience, you pretty much look at how to solve the problem. but when you have an open mind your ability to look at different perspectives question your own biases and therefore understand the business problem better is very very important when it comes to looking at how you will suggest a solution the other thing he talks about is looking at every piece of data often this is a misnomer that i see where people come in and then say 
where is the data or I have too much of data. In fact, what he really talks about is picking up small pieces of data and trying to understand what these small data elements mean. It could be in the plant where a simple sheet is being maintained, where data is picked up, patterns are being looked at. And when you look at these patterns, you realize that there is a business problem that can be solved. And therefore, having an open mind and looking at any data element that you have access to can throw up interesting ideas and solutions. Uh, so you are at a stage in your career, Sri, uh, where, uh, you know, from a great manufacturing nation, uh, you know, US uh, moved all manufacturing out of the country, right? Yeah. So yeah. in a way you are, uh, you know, you did something contra, right? Which is because you are actually, uh, you know, all manufacturing pretty much moved out of the US. Mm-hmm. Uh, you still, you know, pursued with the manufacturing, uh, yeah. you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, domain that you yeah. started in. Uh, mm-hmm. Was there any specific reason you saw opportunity? What did you see which others did not see? <laughs> uh, that's a great question again. Uh, so uh, I was always fascinated by manufacturing early on. Uh, uh, all my cousins and uh, they're all in manufacturing. And uh, so um, that influenced me definitely. Um, so most of the, my career, I was uh, uh, lucky enough uh, to work for private companies. Uh, my first job was with a steel manufacturing company, Charter Steel, in uh, uh, headquartered in Wisconsin. They're a privately owned, family-owned company. And uh, the, the Mellows family, they had a philosophy, no layoff policy. Uh, okay. And and even when the uh, business was down, uh, they guaranteed 35 to 40 hours of paid uh, uh, work for their employees. Uh, when other companies and steel mills were laying off the people, the air employees will come in. They may paint or clean up, do something. They may not produce steel, but they got paid. And what it allowed them to do was uh, be ready when the upturn came. And okay. Uh, you know, uh, they actually invested, they bought new equipment and we did a lot of project work during downturns. Um, it's a fascinating philosophy. And when I started uh, that company it was uh, like $150, $200 million company. And I think they were now uh, one or $2 billion company. I, I don't keep track of them, um, you know, anymore. Uh, you know, uh, so it's organically they grew and still is uh, maintained as a family owned business. Um, so. To me, uh, you know, there is uh, always a way uh, to be successful um, if you have, you know, if you uh, have a clear path and a clear thought. In a lot of ways, uh, I think uh, Indian businesses, uh, you know, I've seen it over the years. Um, you know, they don't do a lot of mass layoffs and things like that. They still run it as a, a, a family, uh, you know, uh, started companies. I, I go back to my TVS days. Uh, I see uh, notes about uh, the Closker and the Tartars and, uh, um, you know, some of the Indian companies, they do the same thing. And I think uh, culture has to do with it. And uh, some of the Indian uh, U.S. companies are also the same way. And another company is Swagelock, again, is a family-owned company, and they acted the same way. Um, and they thrive, and, and they still thrive um, 
even when other uh, industries and their peer groups were um, suffering, they always thrived. So, you know, I was uh, fortunate enough to be in those companies and I always moved up uh, in those companies. So I didn't really see a need to jump and say, oh, I'm going to be an IT person. Uh, and then after 15 years, you're, uh, you know, sometimes it's kind of a little uh, typecast, right? Um, it's like acting, you know, the actors are typecast into a role. Uh, that did happen. Uh, but, you know, going back to your question, how do you change your career? So that's why, uh, you know, curiosity, I also got bored and doing the same job after a few years. And I always wanted to do something different, better. Uh, the one thing I always kind of tried to do is how do I do my boss's job? Mm. Uh, this is something uh, I learned somewhere. And if I can do my boss's job, you know, my idea is that they will see me value and they may, uh, they will promote me to those roles. So, so and uh, that did happen. Uh, so yeah, that's why I stayed with the manufacturing. I still love it. Uh, so in this section, uh, Sridhar talks about doing your boss's job. That's pretty different from what I've heard. Most often what I've heard is, hey, this is my role. This is my description of what I have to do. And this is what I'm supposed to do. So when you take up something, when you really start saying, how do I do my boss's job? There are a couple of things that you're putting in the talk. One is your knowledge of how you can solve a problem far ahead of your capability. The second one is preparing for it. And the third one is ensuring that you become successful in that. And he also talks about another important philosophy of his value systems and his beliefs aligning with some of the family owned business in the US where there are no mass layoffs. There are times when uh, you know, they're being paid when there is a downturn. Uh, they go and clean up factories, get prepared for an upturn in the business cycle. So there was this philosophy that he believed in having come from a culture like India. And therefore, his alignment of the value systems and beliefs and therefore the kind of job that he started picking up and then doing the boss's job. I think if you want to build successful careers, you need to look at all these anomalies and all these interconnections and that allows you to build a career with a purpose. Do you believe, uh, you know, US uh, has, uh, you know, moved away uh, from its competitive space space of manufacturing that it had and uh, uh, has that been one of the reason for uh, you know uh, i would say relatively uh, you know slower adoption of digital and transformation uh, in manufacturing uh you know it depends on the industry uh, and uh, so automotive uh, been doing this almost uh, 20, 25 years ago. Uh, they were highly automated, not just a physical automation, digital automation also. Uh, you know, they were collecting a lot of data um, and uh, there were, you know, uh, some of the quality improvements. Uh, you know, when you talk about Six Sigma, um, 
you know, automotive industry truly follows and the uh, you know, as a tier two suppliers, we had to uh, learn to, when we supply to automotive, we had to learn to do those things. And so they've been doing it for a long time. Other industries like aerospace, um, you know, it's a high value, but not a high volume products they were making. Uh, so you, you make, for example, uh, maybe a 10 uh, F-35 bulkheads. These are big uh, structural components where engine gets mounted. Uh, mm. Each one was about, uh, uh, I think of half a million dollars, something like that. They will make about 10 per month. And that's how many they were assembling. And uh, so this is, you know, and it is a very involved product. It will take uh, um, a, a couple of weeks to make one of these things, right? Uh, so those industries, they didn't have a real incentive to really, uh, you know, uh, take uh, uh, digital, go digital all the time. And also, Pharma is another example. The profit margins are really high. Um, you know, even from 20 to 40, 50, 60% profit margins. And a lot of times it's the mindset. Um, you know, they don't want to kind of a break something that's working, even though it is paper-based. Uh, so uh, that's the, you know, that's one of the things I tell when I do digital workshops. Um, you know, it's not the tools, it's not the skill set that you need to do digital. It's the cultural mindset. Um, do you have enough lean uh, ideas, mindset within the plants, uh, within your thinking uh, to go digital? That is very important. Um, that's one of the biggest barriers I see uh, to go to a digital factory mindset. And on the, on, on the contrast, uh, when you look at the newer companies like Madonna, for example, or BioNTech and some of the vaccine companies, uh, you know, they didn't have any product, uh, so to speak, uh, uh, until three, four years ago. Uh, their first product is COVID uh, vaccine, and mm. but they were ready for it. And and they uh, look at uh, they have some pa papers that's on the uh, AWS. Uh, you know, it's readily available. They show you uh, what they do. Uh, it's not like a secret or anything like that. Um, they're uh, you know, end to end, uh, they are connected uh, enterprise. Um, you know, a batch release in a pharma industry typically takes anywhere from uh, an average of two to four weeks. Um, Madonna can review their batches within a couple of hours. Um, right, because it's digitized and uh, they're not looking at everything they don't have to their system, so they help them. They don't, uh, they, the, in each and every stage of their manufacturing, they have checks and balances electronically uh, being looked at, and they proceed, uh, uh, you know, um, from step to step without making a lot of mistakes. And uh, so that, that, you know, that's a pretty uh, typical in an automotive. But as Parma is now waking up to that reality, and they started setting up that. So it, it depends on the industry. Uh, okay. And on the other extreme, you look at uh, someone like Apple uh, making, uh, you know, iPhones. Foxconn is highly connected, highly uh, automated industry. And, uh, you know, they are coming to uh, manufacture in India, they're mm -hmm. setting up plants in, uh, right? So you, you're going to see that happening quite a bit. Okay. So here, uh, if you observe what Sridhar talks about, is this importance of not whether manufacturing is done in a country like us or it's moved to some other country but the importance of the mindset of how you build 
a completely connected factory so he talks about the criticality of having a mindset for digital and he really says that i may be a traditional industry like aerospace where it's high value low volume business or it could be a pharma business where traditionally uh, you know it takes you know a couple of weeks to really look at batches while uh, you know there are companies new new age companies which can do it in a couple of hours right so therefore when it comes to digital it's a cultural mindset of looking at how have you been operating over the last you know many decades or many years and you are looking at how you should move into a digital first mindset and there you need to break your traditional thinking look at interconnected patterns look at interconnected processes and that's really how you start building a digital factory and that is important when you do digital transformation uh so that uh, gives me a good uh, segue to ask you a question on what is a digital factory oh uh, so digital factory uh, you know there are uh, you know i mentioned earlier uh, depending on who you ask and which industry you ask or the, you you're going to hear a lot of different answers and da, a lot of different uh, uh, in ideas about digital factory so uh, di- uh, you know digital transformation exists in every uh, Uh, sector every industry uh, whether it's a retail or manufacturing um, you know it, it means uh, different things to different industries so in manufacturing that's my uh, you know i have years of experience almost 30 years of experience there um, you know uh, on one extreme uh, lights out manufacturing uh, what does that mean uh, it means um, physically the plant is completely automated raw material is loaded on Uh, one side of the dock uh, comes from our trucks and whatnot, and the finished product comes out on the other end. Uh, you don't need even need any lights, meaning you don't have anyone in the plant, um, uh, physical human beings there uh, doing the manufacturing. It's completely automated, robots and material handling equipment uh, and equipment running, and uh, so oh, there are factories like that. um the famous example i heard about i never seen it is a fanuka robot making plant somewhere in japan uh, one of the sales engineers they always uh, invited hey if you want to go see you know if you are in japan you can go see that's the extreme end of it um you know often times what you see is a um you know some form of a physical automation uh and uh, off late a lot of digital automation um you know um you know manufacturing generates ton of information um you know the data is collected and stored locally or sometimes fed into corporate uh, servers uh, most of the data almost 80 90% of the data that it goes unused uh, the data never gets translated into actionable information so to what me kind of, uh, what kind of data gets uh, uh, you know stored in corporate servers in manufacturing Uh, every millisecond uh, 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 there is something collected if a operator pushes a button if a temperature changes if a robot moves everything is observed and uh, collected as data and get stored 
and uh, so uh, uh, it could be equipment uh, status data, um, you know, how equipment is working or a product uh, uh, related data, like a, at what temperature a product was made or at what speed was it made, things like that. So um, anything uh, you can see, observe, uh, it is getting collected and stored. And most of the time it gets stored and it's sitting there uh, not being used. Um, and often, uh, when so my, first, my, my question is, uh, how is it collected? Uh, so, you know, at a modern digital factory, uh, you have sensors of the, uh, uh, all these, uh, how it is collected and everything is defined by uh, a standard called ISA 95. Um, it was developed uh, way 30, 40 years ago at the Purdue University, it used to be called Purdue Model. And it describes uh, how different systems and different levels of systems uh, classified and how they talk to each other. And from all the way from the shop floor, the sensors like a temperature sensor or a, a speed sensor or anything, all the way to the corporate uh, systems like the enterprise resource planning, ERP systems, product lifecycle management systems, customer uh, CRM uh, tools. Um, the ISA 95 model describes that. Mm -hmm. And um, so at the shop floor level, at level zero, level one, you have sensors, you have programmable logic controllers talking to the sensors. Um, and the programmable logic uh, uh, controllers in turn are talking to SCADA systems or MES tools. SCADA is a supervisory control and the data acquisition systems. Um, these are all uh, more of a software systems. Mm -hmm. um, so the lowest level, the data is collected at uh, milliseconds and microseconds. As you go up, uh, the uh, data gets consolidated at the PLC, uh, still milliseconds. At the MES or scale systems, maybe uh, seconds, minutes. Uh, as you go into ERP, it's more of a days and weeks, and that's how its data gets collected, okay. gets filtered. Um, you know, for a ERP system, they don't really need to know how fast a product ran. Rather, they want to know when the product will be done uh, production, will be ready to be shipped out so they can give that information to their customers. So that's how the systems work. Yeah. Okay. So if you carefully observe what uh, Sridhar talks about, he says that in most companies and especially in manufacturing which is the example that he talks about there's a lot of data that often gets collected but often not used i think this is something that all of us need to think saying hey uh, you know is data available of course data is available is it being used most often it's not being used that's one part of the problem that i think uh, you know you need to think the other important point that uh, you know, I see here in this uh, point that he makes is that if you look at, uh, you know, industrial transformation, you did physical goods, the physical goods were not automated. Then you started looking at, hey, how do I do a light sword manufacturing process where there is no hands touching right from the time when, you know, the products, uh, the, the raw materials come from the stockyard to actually becoming a finished good. So that's really how physical factories really started changing. And then you started saying, you know, how do you really do a 
lights out manufacturing process now that is probably exactly what's happening to knowledge factories where you know you had physical people you you know you are doing the programming you are now doing the programming you get a lot of business problem and then you start looking at saying hey how do i really automate the process so you know there is a requirement that's coming there's a solution that needs to be built there is a software that needs to be done so now you have the ai and the machine learning really looking at saying okay how do i solve this problem so the fundamentals of how from an industrial economy to a knowledge economy the change happened over the last 50 years the the tenets of how do you build a digital factory for a knowledge industry pretty much can be learned from the manufacturing industry and how the transition from a industrial economy to a knowledge economy happened and therefore how digital factories were built in the manufacturing sector and that's really how i think the knowledge factories of today will become digital factories of tomorrow so so therefore there are these bunch of components uh, you know sitting in the shop floor and they are throwing the data from yep. the sensors to the plc's to the scala systems and uh, and then they get into some kind of a server and they remain as raw data and uh, that's really how uh, you know this whole uh, data gets collected so so when you look at a digital factory yep. uh, uh, you know i think uh, very interesting uh, data point that i read was uh, most companies are moving into becoming digital factories right because yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, they like what you talked about moderna right basically it takes a couple of hours to uh, you know produce a vaccine so uh, so real digital transformation has to happen uh, if manufacturing needs to get uh, and uh, needs to get digitally connected and mm-hmm. uh, so therefore uh, the, my question is in the digital uh, you know uh, factory uh, how do you define uh, if you want to become a digital factory what are the steps that you need to take to say okay uh, how do i define maturity of a digital factory and yeah. how do i then move from one level to the other and how do you really think through this because there are components there are you know uh, uh, if i go to amazon cloud they say i also have a manufacturing uh, you know cloud and then you can yeah. get in there kind of a thing so what are the key components for this digital factory becoming really valuable to an enterprise yeah um, that that gets into the heart of a, a digital factory uh, that question right there um, so uh, this is where uh, uh, the uh, when you go into any factory these days uh, they are somewhat connected uh, they are collecting data um, you hardly going to see uh, any uh, modern factory uh, you know the sensors or uh, you not going you know they're already there uh, it's not like it, they don't have anything uh, there is a some uh, resemblance of a digital factory is there mm-hmm. and uh, so um, uh, typically uh, uh, to do a digital factory uh, the process you know i'm familiar with and most of uh, people will follow uh, is uh, Uh, there are some tools available digital tools and in industries um, digital uh, plan maturity uh, matrix and some tools are available uh, there are excel spreadsheet based and there's even some software tools are available and they 
giving you a template of questions to ask. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, the pharma industry, for, for example, uses a tool from, um, uh, uh, you know, that's recommended by ISP, uh, is International Society of Pharma Engineering, and a few, few of these uh, trade groups, uh, you know, they have defined these tools and say, this is how a pharma industry should look like. And so these tools are available, so you could use them. Um, but at the end of the day, each tool is uh, has to be personalized a little bit uh, to the industry, to the company. And uh, that's where uh, um, uh, an assessment comes into uh, play. Uh, some, you know, uh, employing someone like me or someone with my background and experience, uh, uh, there are several uh, consulting companies, uh, they do this kind of work. Uh, uh, you know, McKinsey does it, uh, Pricewaterhouse does it, uh, and, you know, pretty much every consulting company, they have a practice now to come in and help you with the assessment of uh, where you are in the maturity index. Uh, and they will compare you to your peer groups, and uh, and you can also even compare to other industries, uh, you know, from automotive, you can compare to pharma and things like that, vice versa, and you can benchmark yourself. And so you can do that, and that takes uh, three to six months of assessment at the beginning. Um, that kind of helps you to level set where you are in your digital maturity. Mm -hmm. um, so there is a scale one to five. Um, so you can put yourself in, you know, um, you know. Typically, I tell for most companies, you're either around uh, two. Uh, that's uh, my experience uh, when you go through this assessment. But that uh, uh, index or that score comes uh, based on these tools that you can use to do assessment. So that's the first step. That's very important. And then, based on that assessment, you do want to have heart-to-heart -heart, uh, discussion with your leadership team and say, look, where do you want to go? Uh, what are you trying to do? What is the business case? What do you want to do digital? Um, you know, um, is it uh, because you want to be number one in your uh, industry, or um, are you losing money? You know, or uh, your, uh, you know, that's uh, the real. Uh, uh, you know, you, you got to spend some time uh, coming up with a vision uh, uh, for the company, what the digital vision is going to look like. And someone may come in and say, "Well, I want lights out uh, manufacturing for every plant." And, but that's not realistic. Uh, realistic, and uh, in, you got to have a pragmatic view of, okay, yeah, that lights out uh, vision is uh, what we want, and that may be five years, ten years from now. That's what we we're going to be. Uh, so you know, some sort of a vision like that, you can define it, and then what can I do in the next, uh, in the short term, next to two years, three years, five years? What are the things I need to do? Uh, that's a roadmap you want to build next. Uh, and, and a lot of companies, uh, they go company-wide. Uh, every site, uh, they're going to do some level one type work uh, on that roadmap. Some companies, uh, they go uh, take a pilot plan, uh, they call it, uh, 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 you know, lighthouse projects, uh, and they take one plant uh, that may be close to uh, uh, where they are in their digital maturity, and they say, we are going to do these four or five different things. Uh, you know, we're going to set up uh, some, we're going to collect some data. Uh, and, you know, or maybe we're only collecting data. We're going to build some dashboards uh, that converts the data, raw data into actionable information that the sites can use. Uh, so those are some of the projects you come up with. And uh, typically companies do uh, proof of concept pilot uh, at one site. And then, you know, 
make sure everything works the way you like it, and then maybe try to uh, lean it out, use some agile uh, methodologies, uh, and build some playbooks, and then you can give it to every site and then tell them to go implement it. So there's a lot of different ways to build that roadmap. So that's a typical uh, process. So when you're doing that, we also have to have good assessment and also good report back to your leadership. And the key in this whole process is the buy-in from the highest level of the company, uh, CEO on down. So. Here Sridhar talks about mixing pragmatism with innovative thinking and balancing it with business realities. That's really how I think most often innovative ideas such as building a digital factory, getting into transformative work like digital takes shape. What I believe he's saying and is very important is there are tools and tools and tools, but there is a need to customize it to your environment, your business challenges, and your objective of where do you want to be. A tool cannot take you to where you know uh, you want to go. It's important to know where you want to go, and a tool is a catalyst. So when you are looking at something like a digital factory, the important point that he makes here is the fact that your vision, your leadership buying into the philosophy of lights out manufacturing, uh, looking at profitability. So the business issue comes to the fore. So if you're an engineer having access to the best of the technologies, the fact that you need to put it back into how a business looks at the problem and therefore connected back to any of the technologies that you have and therefore which of these tech platforms which of these tech solutions in this case it could it could be a SCADA system it could be something that is a plc that's connected to machines there's a lot of disparate data that's available what's important is to have a clarity on where do you want to go and then apply a digital transformation process and a roadmap and that I think will make it extremely successful. So, uh, so when you say, uh, you know, there are tools, what yep. I'm, uh, what I'm uh, you know, learning from this conversation is, uh, you know, there are tools, but you have to get your strategy right, right? Absolutely. So, uh, I think that's really a very important point that you're talking about. So, yep. can you give me an example of, uh, you know, uh, how do you uh, you know get a strategy that was right and therefore it became a digital factory and wh therefore what kind of outcomes and returns have some companies seen and therefore can you give me a real life example of how to define that because when i look at a manufacturing plant at least what i have seen is that oh you know what uh, you know my productivity should increase okay my efficiency should get better my uh, you know asset uh, asset life cycle uh, you know, should be better. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I've heard these kinds of things. Okay. But right. when I'm actually looking at a digital factory, are there some larger business goals which are very different from the traditional, uh, you know, analog factory to a digital factory? How do you uh, assess what kind of business goals can I set for myself? Well, 
I wouldn't say they are too different. Uh, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, any business or their end goal is to make money, right? Um, uh, you know, um, I, you see a scene, uh, slogans, uh, you know, we want to save people's lives, uh, uh, we want to do good, uh, do no evil, uh, you know, all those things are slogans at the end of the day. But, uh, you know, bottom line is you are there to make, um, uh, you know, a return on investment for your investors, um, you, you know. Um, so how you go about doing is what uh, differentiates the companies. Um, you know, digital factories, um, you know, there's a hard way to do and there's an easy way to do. And the analog factories, they do it in the hard way. Um, you know, um, you can inspect every bolt and nut that you manufacture. Uh, and even in China, uh, the low uh, uh, labor costs, it, it's becoming prohibitively costly to do that kind of a work. Uh, and that's where uh, the uh, Six Sigma, the million uh, parts per, uh, uh, you know, you know PPD, uh, reducing a defect comes into play. Uh, they want to make sure you produce it without inspection. You can either inspect quality or you can produce quality. Hmm. And so that's a mindset you need. You know, this is, goes back to the lean uh, mindset. Uh, that's where it comes from. All these things come from. So to me, that's uh, uh, thinking in a digital factory. Um, uh, but Madonna, for example, decided uh, they're going to be completely cloud-first uh, manufacturing. And uh, they hardly have any servers or anything in their factory. So that's, a, you know, they can do that because it's uh, all greenfield. Uh, you know, they, didn't, they were building a factory, so that's how they built the factory. So how do I, how do I become a cloud-first factory? Uh, on a greenfield site, it's much easier because you're starting from a, you know, empty canvas, white uh, uh, sheet. So you can design it the way you want to do. Uh, and, uh, you know, you connect everything. You make sure you have good uh, internet connection and everything. Your network is up to speed. So uh, so you design everything uh, to that effect. Uh, okay. You know, I'm running everything in AWS. That's what Madonna does. But okay. 90% of the companies, uh, they're not greenfield plants. They're uh, what we call the brownfield sites. They have existing assets. They're high-performing assets right now. You're not going to abandon it. There's no business case to rip and replace. Mm. Uh, you still have to bring them uh, to uh, the uh, digital factory uh, side of it. And that's the biggest challenge. That's why uh, some of the, uh, uh, you know, um, the, the, some of the challenges really is to uh, go about and say, okay, I'm going to be a diesel factory. So how do you go about doing it? So that, that's where the, in the roadmap I was talking about comes into play. Um, if it is a greenfield, yeah, you start from scratch, that's the easy, uh, easiest way to do it. Brownfield, um, you obviously want to do it gradually. And uh, so uh, each site may be, you know, in the same company may be different. Um, they may be assembling cars, one site may be 40-year-old site, another site may be 15-year-old site. So they may be in a different uh, maturity level. Uh, so that's why you, you do have to individualize and you have to adjust your strategy. Uh, that's where the strategy becomes a more of a, uh, when I say strategy, you think it will be set in stone. It never is. It, it is a dynamic strategy and it is going to change uh, uh, site to site. And, and so you definitely need a corporate strategy to say, this is how I'm going to implement it. This is how I'm going to pay for it. And uh, you know, at the corporate level, you may say, 
I do see a value uh, doing everything on this side because that's already uh, um, performing at 90% level and I'm trying to get the, the remaining 10%. And that probably is the hardest because you have uh, you know, got all the low hanging fruits with the 90% performance uh, and then the remaining 10% performance is the hardest one to get. So you may want more data. And, and that site may provide you more data because it's already high performing sites. So okay. that, that's one way of approaching it. The other way of approaching it is a low performing site may, be, may have a lot of low hanging fruits that may be easy to solve also. So okay. that's where the strategy comes in and you have to make up your mind based on case by case and say, this is how, what my approach is going to be. Uh, you know, if I did a million dollar on a low performing site, I may bring up the performance 20, 30%. Or may have to spend $10 million to improve the performance of a site that's already performing 90% level. Uh, I, I may improve only one or 2%. So that's where, uh, you know, use the data to help uh, form your strategy. Okay. You'll observe uh, in this conversation, Sridhar spent the last couple of minutes talking about strategy. So here is an engineer trained in math science talking business strategy. So as an engineer, as you move up an organization, the value you provide to an organization is understanding the business strategy, the business realities, and ensuring that the technology and the platforms and your engineering skills come to the fore. This balance is very, very important. Life is not just going to be about just solving some engineering problems. As you move up, your ability to look at the big picture, look at what the industry needs. So that becomes more and more important. Therefore, what is, what is critical and therefore what is important for you is to look at saying, okay, What's the business problem I'm trying to solve? How many different kinds of business problems are there? Which of my engineering skills and engineering problem solving skills can I use to solve this business problem? What are the high maturity problems that require top engineering skills? What are the low maturity problems that require low level engineering skills? But what's not going to go away is your ability to mix your business strategy, understanding of the business problem with, with your engineering skills. That is going to remain forever. So uh, if I were to move from, say, a low-performing site to mm -hmm. a high-performing site, uh, let's take the example of pharma or automotive or whatever. You know, yeah. we can take an industry. Yeah. Uh, uh, normally, uh, you know, what KPIs really drive this change because uh, you know I, I want the audience to get a sense of how do I get that change because normally if I'm in an automotive factory I'll say how many cars how many more cars would I produce is yeah. that what is important or how many uh, you know different models of cars should I be producing then the customization and personalization becomes very very di uh, different yeah. Okay. Yeah. or if I'm in a pharma factory I'll say you know I can produce uh, you know, 20 lines of different pharma products in mm -hmm. uh, per hour. Okay. 
So sure. therefore, uh, I just want them to get a sense of how they define the strategy and therefore the importance of the digital factory in scaling it. Right. That's very yeah. important. Yeah. The, so the business case, uh, coming back to the business case, right? Uh, and uh, uh, the business case is going to be depending on what you're trying to improve. Uh, so even within the same company, one factory versus the next factory, the business case may be different. Uh, and uh, so all those things you listed, reducing the cost, improving the operations efficiencies, improving the uptime of the equipment, uh, product mix, uh, improving the quality, doing it right the first time, um, improving safety, another one of them. And off late, uh, we also started adding zero, uh, uh, um, you know, net zero and uh, sustainability. Um, you know, that's also getting added to. Those are the, some of the key uh, uh, performance targets that the companies are using it. And, you know, when you're doing an assessment with uh, some of these uh, digital tools, those are also part of the questions you will start asking to side by side uh, to say, okay, for this side, it may be efficiency. So uh, during my work at Alcoa, when we used to go to different sites, each one had a different issue. One side had a quality issue, another side had a throughput issue. And so each one has to do things differently um, and had to focus on different KPIs. And so that's becomes a part of the site level assessments. So, you know, we talked about vision, uh, corporate strategy, and then uh, we build a corporate uh, roadmap. Now, each site had to build their site level roadmap. And uh, while you're defining it, you also have to define what is important to the site. And mm -hmm. uh, so uh, in Parma, one site may be producing bulk materials, another site may be taking that bulk material, filling them into small vials. So two different processes, even though it's the same company, they may have two different needs and requirements. So that's where site level assessments comes into play. Uh, and the KPIs at the end, the high level, you still are going to look at the reducing cost, quality, uh, improving quality, improving efficiencies, uh, throughput, availability. Uh, so each one will drive different behaviors within the site. If you look at uh, KPIs, when you define them, is directly related to what the business needs are and what the business challenges are. So if you are somebody in technology or in engineering, the fact that when you design KPIs, the need to understand the business problem, the business challenge, and therefore, how do you define the KPI becomes a very important skill that you need to build over time. The KPIs that he talks about, go back and listen, and you will realize that most of them first are business issues. The business issues then get converted into data and the data then gets massaged and analyzed to deliver that KPIs. And he also talks about the importance of linking a corporate strategy with a vision at the higher end and to a site level vision which is to say you know what hey i want to really improve my throughput i want to improve my efficiency i want to really build uh, you know one product at a time and that i need to do at scale now each site depending on the investments that have been made over the past many years because he talks only about few green fields getting set up a lot of them being brownfields so in many projects you enter when they are brownfields and when it's a brownfield and when you want to innovate you 
incrementally chip your way through and that's really how you will be able to show a difference and value to the enterprise so this is an interesting problem that uh, you know that hit my mind i have uh, you know in an automotive industry or in a pharma industry uh, if i have say 10 manufacturing plants or if take alcoa you know i may yeah. actually be making uh, you know products in 10 different plants right. uh, 10 different plants having 10 different problems mm-hmm. okay but when i am a consumer or when i am a customer i may be a b2b customer i don't care from which plant it comes from right yeah. So uh, if you solve a problem of quality in one, uh, you know, factory and you are talking about uh, demand for, uh, you know, uh, demand or customization, which is really what the market need is. Now, how do I really balance all this? Because at the end of the day, I have to measure all this against, uh, you know, uh, some, uh, you know, metric which says is, uh, you know, is Toyota a reliable car manufacturer? Because I may yeah. have hundreds of factories, hundreds yeah. of different problems. So how do I then assess and actually say that digital factory has added value to the, you know, the customer, uh, you know, integrity or trust score or whatever that I were to call it? Yeah, uh, you know, the same company, you know, Toyota's example is a perfect one because, uh, um, you know, Toyota has thousands of thousands of vendors supplying products to them, uh, especially in just-in-time type of production environment. And that's what the Toyota uh, uh, manufacturing system, uh, the production system T, uh, uh, TPM came about, product manufacturing system, uh, uh, came about, right? Um, so, you, you know, one of the things, uh, some companies, the way they do it is each plant and each site is being operated as its own traffic center. Uh, okay. A lot of times, one uh, factory is supplying to the next factory within the same company. Uh, so if my raw material is com- coming from plant A, um, I should, you know, plant B, I'm plant B, I need to make sure, and I have to treat a plant A, even though it's the same company, same family, I need to t- treat them as my uh, supplier. And mm. I had to be, expect from my supplier, the same uh, thing I would uh, expect quality and efficiencies and productivity that I would expect from an external supplier. So uh, one way to handle it is you treat each uh, uh, plant, each uh, line or a, as a profit center. Uh, and, um, you know, that's one way of addressing uh, that question. Um, you know, another way is at the end of the day, the corporation is responsible for the product, uh, the product quality overall. Uh, well, you you are exactly right. When I'm going to go buy a Toyota car, uh, I don't care uh, who made the bolt and not. Um, I'm you know it's Toyota's name on the plate, and so it is. Uh, they are responsible. So uh, you know um, you know if I had to take a guess, uh, Toyota ensures every part of the manufacture uh, meets that requirement, uh, the quality Six Sigma requirement they may have, and that's how they are going to ensure. Uh, and, uh, you know, they don't, ins- you know, when the product is shipped to Toyota's plant, they're not ex- inspecting the plant at their receiving end. Uh, the expectation is it has already come in the quality, uh, and if it has to be inspected, it is done at the supplier's end, right? Um, that's one way of ensuring, um, you know, my product uh, in every stage it is, um, it is uh, in quality. Another way is with the modern uh, digital factory, um, every step of the way, 
you know, that's one of the expectations when you're setting up a system to ensure it is meeting the spec. So for example, if a product has to be within a certain tolerance, let's say temperature, um, I'm going to use the Fahrenheit here. So that's what I'm, these days I'm familiar with. Um, say if, if a product is, uh, uh, has to be made at a 80 degree plus or minus 10%. And during your manufacturing process, that's what the one of the expectations was. In mm. the past, uh, you know, if a specification says, make sure the product is at room temperature. To me, that's not a good, very good specification. Mm. Room temperature in the US may be different in winter versus summer. So if a engineer, process engineer, or a, you know, a product designer says, make sure uh, the cake is baked at room temperature, that's not a very good specification. I want a very precise specification. And so this is where digital factory, when you say I'm going to do set up a digital factory, it's not, you know, installing a bunch of uh, devices, connecting controllers and systems. Is everything that I do from product design all the way to inspection, making an inspection, do, do I have a design factory mindset applied principles applied to that process? So it's not about uh, operation doing something, engineers doing in the shop floor, something that's going to make you a digital factory. It is an entire uh, supply chain doing the things. And so in the case of a baking a cake, I precisely want 80 degree Fahrenheit plus or minus 10% mm. over a certain time it has mm. to be baked. That is the specification I'm expecting that I can turn that into a recipe that I can give it to a PLC, Programmer Logic Controller. It can use the thermocouple RTD to monitor it and report back to say, yes, I maintained that temperature within that tolerance for the two hours you asked me to make, uh, bake the cake. Don't have to inspect it. Since I met those requirements, that cake should come in at that quality that you want and it won't be burnt so when you look at what uh, he talks about in terms of specs a digital factory or any automation process the importance of being precise is something that that's extremely critical to being a successful digital factory in the past uh, if you didn't automate and if you didn't have the data, you would probably give a certain large policy decision saying that, hey, this is how I want. But today, any process that you look at, whether you're building a software or whether you're building a product, the importance of devices being tagged on from the time you start designing a product to the time you deliver the product until the time you service a product the fact that you can use multiple devices to collect this data to a specification that you actually have on blueprint and then start measuring it and then finally you are able to connect all all of them up and therefore the fact that interconnected processes and looking at data from different processes feeding into the next is very very important and therefore siloed thinking 
is something that's not going to be a important need that uh, that businesses have siloed thinking is something that will not succeed siloed thinking will create you know islands of excellence but what digital factories do is to build a chain of excellence across processes and that is something that's going to be adopted by even the knowledge industry so so is that where probably the concept of a dig- digital twin comes in because uh, you know uh, i am actually doing it you know i i have to do it on uh, you know on a system uh, see how the product comes out so that finally when i put it out in the factory where i'm send, uh, selling yeah. millions of products uh, you know the investment is far more larger and therefore yeah. is so is is that what is called as a digital twin that's that's great uh, yeah segue uh, yeah yeah a lot of ways it is uh, uh, you know digital twin is used in a lot of different ways but one of the ways is to uh, um, you know when you're designing a product uh, you want to know how that's going to uh, be produced uh, and one of the ways to do it is uh, uh, model your process or your equipment using a digital twin model and run simulations and adjust your temperatures now you know, you know uh, this you can do it safely and uh, without blowing up anything and cost effectively because you're not basing your product uh, right you know the, going back to my steel uh, industry uh, experience uh, the most uh, cost incurred in steel making is the conversion uh, cost um, mm. the energy you put in to make the steel and so you you not you can't do experimentation um, you know, but with a digital twin, you can do those kind of uh, uh, trial and error type uh, experimentation. Um, and, and, and with the digital twin also, um, you know, um, with the machine learning and artificial intelligence, um, it takes you to the next level. Uh, for example, uh, uh, vaccine manufacturing uh our uh, you know tablet uh, you know uh, medication um, they're uh, trying to create um you know either you mix up a bunch of chemicals and uh, you know, try to see trial and error you can do that uh, that's how they used to do um you know vaccine uh, manufacturing took anywhere from 12 to 17 years uh, because they were literally performing those tests physically mm. off late they're using digital twins and a lot of automated machine learning and artificial intelligence to build these uh, models to simulate those things really fast and get to 80, 90% of the way and then tweak the remaining 10, 20% in the actual plant. So how does that work, Sri? Uh, so uh, I don't have a physical plant or, uh, you know, I have a composition for a tablet. Uh, mm-hmm. So where do I deploy it? Because normally they do uh, tests on, uh, you know, uh, they use uh, on, uh, you know, what they call as uh, target patients or whatever. And then that's really, then they see the, uh, you know, impact. That's the way they uh, build over 17, 18 years. Now in a digital twin, uh, you know, how do I assess how it works? So uh, is that something which is completely uh, uh, machine learning and, uh, or, uh, you know, if it is a product like, what you're talking about, uh, 80 degrees or whatever, how, uh, uh, you know, it's a completely simulated environment, is it? Yeah, I mean, the phase one, two, uh, three trial for a drug product, you still have to go through with the uh, human phase trials before uh, 
the FDA or any regulatory authority is going to approve your product. You still have to go through that. But to get to the point, uh, they typically did a 10, 12 years of uh, uh, you know, creating these concoctions, uh, different uh, uh, products uh, by physically doing it. Uh, so originally uh, they automated it uh, using machines and then they moved to the next step and say, look, uh, the chemicals are going to react this way, that way. Um, you know, this is a subject I'm not really an expert on uh, when it comes to uh, drug products, uh, how they do this. Uh, I can go back and uh, give you a simulation of uh, uh, manufacturing uh, in the aerospace part. Please, please. Uh, which I'm really very familiar with. So, yeah. uh, so you know, when, when you're building a, uh, say, F-35 fighter uh, plane, um, one of the things that, uh, you know, but maybe we shouldn't talk about F-35. There may be some, uh, um, you know, uh, that may be classified and stuff like that, which I don't know anything about. So uh, I've been out the industry in almost five years. But um, let's say if I'm building a product for a new uh, Boeing or an Airbus uh, uh, plane, um, it's all about lightweight. Mm. Uh, so steel is heavy. Uh, you can't really put steel in airplanes. So they started using aluminum. Aluminum is uh, lightweight, but it is not as strong as uh, steel. So they started mixing alloys. Mm. And uh, so uh, to produce a new product uh, used to be you, you mix up literally, physically, you mix up a bunch of different alloys and uh, to figure out uh, how uh, strong it is, uh, come up with the different strengths uh, and how it is going to perform in different conditions, temperatures, is it going to break? If I'm launching this, putting it in a rocket, how is it going to perform in, uh, in, 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 uh, outer, uh, in space? Uh, those are the things that they literally, they were used to test. So it will take anywhere from five to 10 years to do these kinds of testing. Uh, so now what they do is, uh, Instead of physically testing these things, um, they have uh, evidence of uh, some of these uh, products, how they behave, uh, characteristics of different alloys and stuff. So they have those uh, things, uh, data available. So they use those data. Uh, they do finite element analysis and a bunch of other uh, computational tools. They build those into a, a digital twin model and they simulate how a product will perform. And uh, and so uh, what it allows them to do is they can eliminate some of the other combinations mm. effectively. So they get you around 50, 60% of the way. Uh, so that reduces the time frame much less. Uh, and then based on those simulations, they, then they go back and they do uh, create those combinations physically, test it, and further refine their models. So the constant model refining goes on. Uh, so it never a straight, you know, 80% of the way I'm going to simulate myself. Um, you know, it's a step process. Uh, you, you simulate, eliminate some other possibilities and then make a prototype. And so you're reducing, in the meantime, you're reducing that cycle time that needs to make the product. So thinking back, uh... Is there some learning to take from the digital twins that the manufacturing industry uses for the software and IT industry? Most often, uh, what we really see is, uh, you know, when you deploy a tech or a software, 
the business benefits or what they call is you know uh, the return on investment or uh, you know the uh, tco as they call it and therefore the roi that happens out of uh, it products uh, is pretty much uh, i believe in a manufacturing era where you know you build products you deploy them uh, you know do you often measure efficiency do you measure productivity uh, do you really look at uh, you know when a release happens uh, does that release really help the customer i think there's a lot of learning that the manufacturing industry provides because they've built physical products they've got data they then build the digital twins and then simulate them in a structured environment and therefore in a restricted environment and therefore they are able to see some results and then they are able to build a product so similarly the it industry is i believe the software industry is in a manufacturing era where you know there are lots of uh, you know hypotheses and biases and solutions that you know come in a software engineer's mind but when it gets deployed is it easy to use does it save time does it give me better productivity are we able to collaborate better these are themes that are on the basis on which products are built but do we collect data and therefore can we then start to fine tune it i think there's a lot of learning that can be picked up from the manufacturing industry and from digital factories because today's knowledge industry will become digital factories of tomorrow and therefore there's a lot of learning to pick up and apply them here you probably were responsible or one of the team members uh, to set up the 3 billion dollar uh, you know sanofi uh, you know vaccine greenfield site probably the largest uh, you are amongst the uh, guys there so how was it to set up as large a greenfield site It must have been completely automated what was the kind of scale that they were operating well so the, the... Sanofi site was actually a 120 year old site so it was not a greenfield site uh, that okay. particular site uh, so uh, uh, it's a 3 billion dollar biggest vaccine site i think it is 3 billion um, i may have to go check on it uh, I, i put it on my resume so it got to be so uh, well anyway uh, so i you know this site is a, a close to a 1000 acre site and uh, and it's a huge uh, vaccine manufacturing site oh, they are one of their biggest vaccine manufacturing sites um within the site they were building a 500 million dollar uh uh new biologics building uh to uh, increase their capacity and it was one of those uh, us government sponsored projects uh to uh, build a new capacity in the us um you know typically um I was not in, uh, involved in the beginning of that site, so that's kind of a genesis when it comes to the pharma. Whereas I can talk about the 130 million dollar uh, site, um, uh, steel plant site, that I was involved from day one. Uh, so I, yeah, I worked uh, in an existing plant almost 10 years, uh, brownfield site in an old steel plant. So I had a pretty good idea of what I wanted to do on a greenfield site. and so uh one of the things in any project uh, when you started doing a project uh, is what product you are going to manufacture mm-hmm. uh, uh you know uh, that's all the basis for everything you do right after that 
And uh, so uh, this particular instance, uh, you know, steel making is, uh, there's two kinds of steel making. You have carbon steel making and stainless steel uh, steel making. They're both completely different products. Uh, uh, a melt shop that makes a carbon steel making doesn't make stainless steel making. Uh, you cannot make those. But this company decided to do both in the same plant. So that became uh, uh, the basis for how we do. Uh, uh, so there is a mechanical design aspect of it. Uh, so someone else was doing it. Uh, the different equipment they had to buy, different uh, furnaces they had to buy, different power requirements uh, they had to have for each one. So they were doing it. Whereas my uh, job was uh, more related to uh, you know raw material moving through the plant, how we uh, receive it, how do we do the conversion, what kind of uh, automation we need, what kind of a data we need to collect. So we're uh, doing a data mapping of the entire process. Mm. Uh, so at the beginning, you, you do that process and then you work with the different uh, suppliers. Um, you know, steel making is uh, almost a 200, 300 year old uh, industry. Um, they're making steel forever. And so, you know, you also look at the industry, what other companies are doing, and then you come up with the concept design. Uh, and, and then uh, you go about and say, these are the different, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to melt it, I'm going to refine it, uh, I'm going to uh, take the different impurities out, and then I'm going to cast it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so th- those are the three or four different areas. And within each area, we started looking at uh, what we want in terms of equipment. So overall, I also had a philosophy of what kind of a control system I needed. So mm. I had some corporate standards written uh, for each area. Uh, say, I want this particular uh, uh, brand of PLC, this particular brand of uh, human machine interface. I mm. want this particular uh, SCADA system. And so those are some of my corporate standards. So that becomes a basis for any vendor to bid on the package to mm. provide a proposal for you. So, you know, a plant like this, it takes almost uh, two to three years to design, develop, uh, and uh, get bid packages, and then uh, use those bid packages to uh, further uh, refine your processes. In the meantime, you're working your, uh, with uh, your IT groups, your quality groups to say, Hey, I need this kind of infrastructure. IT, can you provide me this kind of a network, a wireless network, whatever that is, uh, servers and everything. Quality, what kind of a data that we need to collect? And how mm-hmm. are we going to use this data? Work with your metallurgist, what kind of a chemistries we are going to make? Mm-hmm. How can you predict when uh, steel will be done? Can we mm-hmm. build some models for it? So all of those things become part of it. So it is a complex process. And obviously, I'm not the only one in, the, in this team. And you, you surround yourself with a lot of smart people who know what they are doing and, and then take the benefit of their wisdom. And uh, you know, my role, and then it becomes a more of a um, con, you, you know, you know you, you, you're facilitating uh, different the communications and ideas. Uh, and, and and then also uh, being pragmatic, what is possible and what is our you know capex needs and what is available. So you mingle all that, uh, and then have a good project managers uh, to help you uh, because it is a complex project, right? So mm. yeah.
what is the what's the kind of outcome uh, did you achieve out of this did you achieve the goal that you set out and so what was Correct. it like and what were you really uh, you know proud about yeah uh, uh, yeah uh, it was a 120 million dollar product and uh, we did build it and uh, you know 15 years ago it was one of the very modern uh, steel making plant in the us at the time and uh, we did make uh, stainless steel and carbon steel and uh, the first time we made a stainless steel it took almost like a uh, i would say 48 hours to make one batch of steel uh, whereas a carbon steel every hour will make one batch so mm-hmm. you can see the complexity there was a lot of learning and um, and also uh, our uh, when we first started our utilization uh, rate was about 40 45 percent um, a lot of learning uh, a lot of uh, um, uh, changes we had to make uh, we had some reliability premature uh, failure issues uh, so i had to adjust my hat and, uh, and we had a lot of teams uh, you know one of the teams i was on was how to improve the cash flow reliability i learned quite a bit uh, and we brought the uh, efficiencies and uh, uh, to almost 70 uh, percent by the time i left the company um, so it was a you know when you see the product coming out uh, it, 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 that's one of those the best satisfactions you can get out of um you know um it's like a uh, you know when i had my, my kids uh that was you know one of the best joys you can have and probably it's uh, not as quiet as that but uh definitely it's a it's a great achievement uh, you gain a lot of confidence um you know it's a lot of hard work you know like it's a 15 hour days uh, non-stop for uh, you know starting up a plan six to eight months uh, um, you, you know your your uh, you know your work you're using all kinds of hours um, you're spending a lot, a lot of sleep plus hours um, you know but at the end it's all well worth it uh, and uh, um, I would say it's one of the very uh, productive efficient plans um, I even took a visit uh, Four or five years later, uh, um, twice I actually took uh, two different companies that I worked for on a planned tour of it. I had a good relationship with the company. I haven't done a tour in five years of the site, uh, but um, you know, it's one of those family-owned companies. They welcomed you back. Um, you know, they uh, you know. So I was grateful to take a tour back. Uh, uh, some of my um, uh, uh, people in my team to show them what a digital plan would look like and okay. uh, you know so yeah uh, great yeah so when you build uh, the nature of what Sridhar talks about the digital factory a completely green field project like the steel plant that he talks about what was interesting for me to observe and uh, look at is the multiple functions that he had to coordinate and understand. So it's not just about his area and role of saying, let me build a digital factory. I am a manufacturing specialist. Let me now bring my PLCs and SCADA systems and you know all other kind of human interface devices into the plant. He had to work with the IT team, understand 
help them understand the networking principles that was required. He had to work with the metallurgy team and actually say, you know what, if you are re- really looking at what kind of a data do you want from these devices to decide on your quality, what kind of data should I be capturing? The ability to think multifunction, to be interdisciplinary, to learn from other industries and apply them is a key is a key skill that I think is very very important. And as you build new ideas, new factories, new thoughts, the fact that you need to interact and coordinate with multiple functions and help them understand your vision, seek their support and ensure that their work becomes efficient is something that as an engineer, as a business head, as a, uh, you know, as an ongoing, uh, you know, person who's actually building your career, these become very important. And if you are in a siloed, closed thinking job mode, you will never be able to expand and build large digital transformation projects like a digital factory. So, uh, so one of the things that I uh, read, which is interesting for me, was you talk about the interdisciplinary learning you had from different industries. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how important is it for an engineer, uh, Sri, for uh, the interdisciplinary learning? Yeah, uh, I think it is very important. Uh, a lot of uh, times when you uh, go to a new plant, um, engineers there uh, working in that site uh, 20 years, 30 years, uh, knowing everything uh, about it. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, there was an application in one plant. I won't name the plant. Um, I don't want to em- embarrass anyone. Um, you know, um, so the process is uh, before you can make a product, you have to oil the part so it doesn't stick to uh, the, the mold. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, seems like a simple uh, thing, uh, but they had people uh, manually uh, uh, doing this work, uh, oiling the plant, uh, the pot, and uh, you know it's a waste of uh, talent. Uh, you know you're putting a guy; um, it's not a value-added uh, function. Mm-hmm. You're standing there as a long uh, hose with a metal wand at the end as a nozzle and sprays oil, and he's just. You know, going through it's like you're making a dosa uh, in India. Uh, you know, you oil it, and you look like you know, you, but every time I see it on YouTube, it's fascinating how you know it comes off. Same thing if you're making an aerospace parts, you're oiling it. Um, and uh, one of the mandate that we had was uh, to uh, automate this process, and it can be easily done. I can put a robot in, and they I can teach it, and it will do that all day, every day. Uh, mm. You know, uh, a robot will cost anywhere from twenty to hundred thousand dollars. An employee, uh, you know, on those days it was a hundred thousand dollar per uh, employee. Uh, when you're work, uh, working in a union shop, it's very really hard to replace an employee because they're losing an employment, right? Mm. Um, so that's one of the challenges. My point to them is, look, I could use that person, and the data has shown every time you did an automation. Uh, it allowed the companies to expand and hire more people. Mm. Uh, people think automation, uh, you will lose employment. You know, no, if a company is successful, 
Um, and if you're then making profit, they're going to expand. They're going to hire more people. That's what I have seen. Uh, there may be instances where automation replaces people, but when you dig deeper, there are other issues why the companies couldn't uh, sustain and the, you know, they did what they did, they closed up and things like that. But a well-run company, automation actually enhances and makes them more productive and expand. The private companies I worked, uh, in the two companies I worked uh, in my career, they were always like that. They always expanded with the, even with the automation. So okay. this thing was, uh, the feedback from the software was, well, you cannot automate this oiling process because the oiling is an art form and it's in the movement of the wrist. And that's a mindset, uh, the cultural uh, issue you run into. Uh, not being in other industries, you don't see how even a more complicated uh, process than that is being automated. Uh, mm. They have robots, they can uh, put a screw in an iPhone. Mm. Uh, if they can do that, I'm pretty sure you can automate an oiling in that part. So that, that's why it's important for engineers. And this comment, it's in the wrist movement came from an engineer. So that's why it is important uh, tying all that back to see different industries, have that uh, wide experience and have an open mind. Uh, it's like a traveling, right? When you travel, you see different things and your mind expands. Here, uh, Sridhar talks about the importance of interdisciplinary thinking, learning from other industries. If you are steeped in one industry, uh, you know, it could be IT, it could be software, it could be banking, it could be, uh, you know, mutual funds, it could be insurance, uh, it could be, uh, you know, healthcare. When you're steeped in an industry, you pretty much get into a cognitive bias of saying, you know what, here is the way it gets done here, this is the way to do it. But when you want to transform a digital process, What's important is to look at adjacent industries, different industries, how they've solved the problem, learn from them, and then start to apply it back in these processes. The other important point that uh, he makes is the fact that automation increases more jobs. That's a very, very interesting perspective because there's a lot of furor, there's a lot of issues around, you know, you're trying to automate this, you know, we're going to keep losing jobs. But the important takeaway that I see from what he's saying is that when you try to automate, you pretty much start looking at the company, handling its demand far more efficiently, far more better. The businesses start doing well and therefore it gives more jobs to people. Therefore, what is important is to look at how automation can transform certain uh, you know skills and therefore the need to constantly upgrade yourself to the new skills that may be required when an automation happens is something to think about so so shri uh, one of the things that is coming out very very strongly to me in this conversation is uh, when i look at uh, you know, uh, a heavy engineering, manufacturing kind of a setup where deep engineering is required. Yeah. Then uh, the knowledge of the domain that, you know, you come with. In fact, as an engineer, you spoke more domain than 
many uh, you know engineers would speak you are not talking about you know uh, architecture or you're not talking about some program or whatever but you're talking about industry issues and then you went back to solving it okay yeah. uh, I, while in other industries other than manufacturing uh, many times i see uh, you know the knowledge of the industry uh, is pretty much uh, you know sometimes uh, you know not there they probably say that okay just program this and give it to me okay mm -hmm. uh, so is that so therefore if i am an engineer would you recommend that uh, you know i do the hard work of working in say a manufacturing unit or a uh, you know uh, or an industrial unit if i were to call it okay for a few years so that it just gives me a hard uh, you know knowledge of what i can then apply and innovate in other industries absolutely i think that that's a great uh, suggestion to be honest uh, um, you put it in a better way like um, uh, yeah i would say that that is a great thing to do uh, having different uh, backgrounds and the experiences only enhances your uh, uh, work uh, you know um, one of the things i learned uh, you know in my tours um, uh, thinking about um, you know one time uh, i was in a, in a alcoa tech center and they were uh, the original suppliers of parts for um, uh, apple products mm. and um, in the, um, some of the stories they um, uh, described how steve jobs was so personally involved in the because they were using aluminum uh, uh, mm. cases and mm. how he was involved in the aluminum parts making even though some of these parts were not even exposed um, they were not even aesthetics parts mm. and uh, so you know the reason I'm, you know i'm bringing that that up is people who are that successful they are so focused and they are uh, want to know everything uh, so for me the best way uh, you know everyone cannot be um, you know, not going to have that kind of opportunities and mindset like Steve Jobs so what is the best thing can you do um, the best thing you can do is i'm fortunate for example is uh, to be in steel to be in um, automotive to be in aerospace now in pharma uh, from life science even within pharma there's life science there is a, a tablets making uh, cell and gene therapy is the next big thing uh, individualized uh, medication is coming they take your genes and you know these are all fascinating every day i learn and 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 then also i'm able to leverage the things so that i learned from one industry and i'm able to apply in another industry uh, and uh, I, I feel that helps me to be a quick learner when I change jobs or uh, take up a completely new industry. Allows me to be, um, you know, I don't want to label myself as successful. That's kind of a self-congratulatory thing. Uh, but uh, it allows me to be uh, to start up on any new jobs pretty quickly. I feel that, and I do. Uh, and so for an engineer, so. I'm going to uh, bring this up. You, you probably might remember it. Uh, I was a civil engineer, uh, civil uh, professor uh, in the college. I forgot his name. Um, shame on me. Um, you know, the one thing he uh, told us was, look, I'm going to teach you, uh, uh, you know, you're going to use some tools that's not even uh, invented yet. Okay, you're going to use those tools. 
So what I'm going to teach you is to how to think like an engineer mm. so that you'll be ready to use those tools that it's not even created yet. Uh, something like that. Okay. Uh, to this day, I think about that. Um, you know, I, I should remember the professor's name, uh, but I don't. Uh, it was a basics of civil engineering class. Mm. Um, he taught us that. And uh, to me, that that mindset comes when you have exposure to different uh, areas. And if you are going to be a programmer in Google, um, you know, uh, sometimes when I look at, use some of the tools, um, uh, especially some of the Microsoft products, I, I you know, I say, why, why don't they get some user input? Oh my God, you know, uh, sometimes I think that, uh, yeah. Uh, here Sridhar uh, shares a very, very powerful thought of how do you really build a product uh, that's not invented as yet? How do you solve a problem that's not invented as yet? How do you build a product for a problem that's not invented as yet? Therefore, as an engineer, what he suggests and which I think is something that I totally agree with is you need to first teach yourself how to solve a problem. And as you build your career as an engineer, as you know, as a doctor, as a, uh, you know, as a musician, there are many, many tools and, uh, you know, machines that are going to come your way over the next 30, 40 years. And you need to understand that if you were to, you know, know how to solve the problem, break, break down the components into real issues, then any problem can be solved when these new devices, uh, you know, come in. Therefore, the fact that you need to really understand core problem solving skills is something that he talks about. And if you are an engineer, the fact that you need to learn these are very, very interesting points that he makes. So therefore, it's not just about, you know, doing the job that you do, but it's about learning from different industries, applying one industry learning to another industry and also looking at things that have never been invented as yet, but you'll be thrown these problems in a couple of decades and you should be able to pick them up and quickly find a solution for them. That's the key skill that you need to build for yourself. Beautiful. So, so I think uh, that's a very interesting uh, perspective, which is understanding manufacturing, you know, spending time in the shop floor, uh, you know, coming back and then applying it in services business or programming or software yeah. businesses is a great way of doing it. Yeah. Uh, which uh, brings me to my last few questions, Sri. Uh, uh, these are going to be rapid fire questions. So, uh, you know, uh, what does success mean to you, Sri? Oh, gosh, uh, that's a fully loaded question. Success means, uh, you know, it's no straight path to success. Um, you know, um, there are a lot of uh, disappointments and failures. Uh, but uh, as long as to me, um, you know, for me in the family life, uh, um, you, you know, that's what I try to tell my kids also. Uh, as long as you're trying and um, be happy in what you're doing, uh, and, uh, and then you're able to uh, make a living out of uh, what you're doing, to me, that's successful. It's not money. Um, yeah, money is great, and uh, you know you get to enjoy some of the final things in life. But as long as you're happy and uh, enjoy 
things uh, that what you're doing. Uh, I look at you, uh, uh, Swami. You mentioned um, you, you you know um, you're, you're able to do what you like. Uh, you know, came from engineering, did complete something completely different. Um, I couldn't imagine doing that. And and then you're doing something different now. You know, completely different, right? To me, that's uh, you, you know you're able to do it on your own terms. And to me, that's to me success. Brilliant. What would be uh, a piece of advice if you were to give to a 18, 18 year old in an university today? Um, for me, um, you know, attitude is everything. Uh, uh, for me, that's so important. Uh, I, that's what I tell my kids, uh, and also anyone I hire, uh, especially uh, fresh uh, grads. I, you know, over the years, I had so many interns um, uh, bring them in. Uh, you don't have to know the tools and technology. You can always learn. Uh, but if you have a great attitude and say, I'm going to give my best, um, that is important. And also, uh, you know, don't expect uh, rewards on day one. Uh, you know, attitude and put your uh, time in, uh, do your best. Um, the rewards will follow you. Uh, even if it's not on day one, uh, eventually you will get the recognition. And if those recognitions are not coming um, after some time, after you put in your attitude and your effort, if it is not coming, also don't be afraid to make a change. Hmm. Uh, those three things to me is important. You have worked with lots of bosses, lots of people, lots of mentors. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you got, which probably you use even today or remember even today? Um, I had a couple of bosses, uh, they said a very similar thing, uh, is uh, uh, be here, do the right thing. Uh, you're a professional, uh, be here, do the right thing. And as an engineer, you know, you don't time in, time out, uh, but be available. Uh, that uh, and, and that's one thing. And the second one is, uh, this is something I learned on my own. Uh, be loyal to your team and to your company. As long as you are there, do your best. Okay, you're there, you accept it, you're going to be there. Uh, do your best and be loyal. Uh, what's one thing that you believe in that uh, others don't agree with you? Oh, <laughs> a lot of things uh, people don't agree with me. Especially my kids and my wife. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, that's a difficult question, to be honest. Uh, um, you know, uh, uh, personally, uh, I think... Uh, there is a, uh, you know, especially in the, in the world we live in, there's a lot of uh, uh, skepticism. Um, you know, you know, I I tend to think that there is always good in people. Um, you know, uh, there are. Uh, um, I try to practice now. You know, try to give the benefits of doubt. Not always. Uh, uh, successfully, but uh, um, you know, I hope everybody can believe that, and uh, you know, just to uh, give some benefit of doubt in when some when you run into some difficult situation or difficult people, uh, don't uh, get too uh, uh, you know turned off by some negative uh, uh, you know behaviors or negative feedbacks or negative uh, experience. Brilliant. If you were to uh, have a dream dinner with a few people, who would be on the table and why? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, 
probably uh, my dad. Um, mm. You know, um, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, he, uh, a lot of things I do practice and learn. Um, kind of like getting emotional here, so sorry. Uh, is I learned from him. Um, it's not like uh, he told things or, uh, you know, just watching him. And uh, he was a college professor. He was a principal in a small uh, time college uh, in uh, Satur uh, near Madurai uh, uh, in India. Um, you know, um, he grew up with, the, uh, uh, you know, his aunt raised him. Uh, he pretty much didn't have parents. Uh, him and his brother. Uh, he grew up very poor, and for 35 years, 40 years, he spent his life uh, teaching uh, kids. And um, you know, you used to have a seven days a week. And he will go to the college, and um, he will bike uh, two miles uh, back and forth to the college. And um, even though you know he could have uh, got a car, uh, you know there was allowances and things like that, but he never uh, took anything. Uh, like that because it will cost money for the college. Um, you know, every Saturday and Sunday he will travel around the, uh, different towns and villages collecting donations for the college. Uh, and I learned a lot from him. And um, he never, uh, some people recognize, and I don't know how, you know, how much recognition he got for his effort, but sometimes I run into people and uh, they will tell, hey, I was a dad student. Uh, from really older people, so uh, for me, uh, I wanted wanted to be like him, and um, you know, I wanted to tell him that uh, how much uh, influence he had on me. Fantastic! So, yeah, thanks, thanks, Sri. Uh, a brilliant conversation. Perspectives which are very, very different. Uh, not normally what I hear. Uh, topic that uh, is not such a glamorous topic because. People tend to talk of chat GPT, AI, uh, you know, software, and, you know, that's what people want to talk about. But I think we talked about some very hard stuff, a lot of details, uh, great perspectives around how an engineer can learn from doing things and being in the shop floor and then taking that to different industries. Brilliant uh, uh, conversation and thanks a lot. It was lovely talking to you. Swami, uh, thank you so much for those kind words. And uh, uh, I hope it, it is uh, uh, after you look back, uh, some of this stuff is useful and maybe you can uh, turn that into a useful podcast. Uh, and uh, and some of the questions you asked are uh, brilliant, made me think. Uh, I was pretty nervous uh, at the beginning. I know I've done a podcast before. Uh, very thought-provoking questions, to be honest. Um, and uh, I, I think this is uh, an art and uh, asking questions uh, that is, uh, and uh, um, uh, I, I really admire. <laughs> uh, it was brilliant. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. Definitely. Thanks for listening to this episode. For selected links and detailed show notes, visit www.contraminds.com/blog. Follow Contraminds on social media and let us know who you would like to see next on the podcast. If you're listening to Contraminds on Apple Podcasts, do share your comments and give us a rating. We are keen to know what you're thinking. Contraminds is also on YouTube. 
If you are listening to the podcast on YouTube, hit the subscribe button and stay up to date on all our releases. Thanks for listening and stay safe.